Well, I did not know until Mike told me this morning that this was the this was the exact six year anniversary. I thought that it must be close, um, which means six years ago today um, I was really nervous and anxious, uh, not knowing what in the world the Lord had planned for uh, this church. And now six years later, I can say virtually nothing I expected has actually happened the way I expected it to happen then. Um, and for those of you who have been here since the beginning, you probably would say to some degree that's true as well. Um, God has worked in unusual and undeniable ways. So I, I know what you have experienced. I know the kindness of God. I know that you have seen God, by His grace, change lives and heal relationships and uh, bring His gospel to life in the hearts of so many different people. But I hope, especially for those of you who were here at the very beginning, I hope you see God's work through you as being far beyond what has taken place just in this fellowship here. Uh, there is... There isn't a week that goes by where a conversation doesn't take place in Watertown, where somebody doesn't make reference to this church and their gratefulness for how God has extended the work he started here, even over to Watertown. So, so I want you to know that, and I want you to see that, that, that so much of what has happened in other places is connected to your faithfulness, and to your desire to see God work, and to see Him work in undeniable ways. So thank you. Thank you both for this opportunity, and thank you for your faithfulness. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. This is a little bit strange. We're kind of parachuting into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, but I hope as we go through it, the pieces will come together, and this will be a rich and beneficial study for all of us. Let me pray before we dive in. Father, we do want to thank you for what you've done. We want to thank you for what you've done in the last six years things that we have experienced and things that we don't even know about. But we know that you have been working. And in fact, we'll be reminded this morning that your work is constant. You are building your church even when we don't see it. So Father, by your Spirit, Open our eyes to see what we have not seen before. Open our ears to hear it and our hearts to receive it. This is your word for us. And so we want to receive it with gladness. In Christ's name, amen. Well, to quote the great theologian Bob Dylan, the times... They are a changing. Of course, this is not a secret, and in some sense, this is always true. 
but it's undeniable that we are presently in the midst of a time of, of rapid cultural change and societal unrest. The question that I want to deal with this morning is fairly straightforward. During confusing and challenging times like the present, what's a Christian supposed to do? What should our response be? Just hunker down and wait for Jesus to return, right? Friends, most people that claim to be Christ followers consider the confusion and complexity of society and react in in one of two ways. They will either tirelessly work to stay relevant, and of course I'm thinking about individual Christians and churches corporately. They will work tirelessly to stay relevant, or there are those who will work just as tirelessly to stay as separated and isolated from the surrounding world as possible. In fact, when you look at the broad spectrum of churches across the world, even within 30 miles of where we're seated right now, you'll find those that are constantly looking at culture and then evaluating ministry and mission, but they're doing it primarily through the lens of cultural relevance. On the other hand, you'll find churches that look at culture and view everything as evil and dangerous, and then they pride themselves in being as different, as separated as possible, typically fostering an us-against-them mentality. Those in the church are the good guys, those outside the church are the bad guys. But is this what we find Jesus instructing His children individually and His church corporately to do? So this morning, I want to invite you to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This part of Jesus' sermon, what we call his Sermon on the Mount. I believe that Jesus in this recorded sermon speaks directly to us in our present situation, friends. I want to suggest that Jesus is calling his people. He's calling his church to be both distinct from the world, and relevant. In fact, I will argue that the way Christ's fellowship is to be distinct is what makes you relevant. The Sermon on the Mount shows us how the church should exist within the world, yet be distinct from the world. So God never encourages His church to creatively manufacture a kind of cultural relevance that will make them naturally appealing to unbelievers. But He does call us to live counter-culturally in a way that is supernaturally appealing to those who are lost. So our relevance does not stem from our ability to bring our culture into the church but we are to live joyfully within our culture according to and distinctly shaped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Keller explains this well. He writes, Christians should be a dynamic counterculture in the city. Now, obviously, he's writing from the perspective of one who lives in Manhattan, so he maybe uses this term city a little differently than we would think about it, but I think this applies. Christians should be a dynamic counterculture in the city. 
It will not be enough for Christians to simply live as individuals in the city. They must live as a particular kind of community. We Christians are called to be an alternate city within every earthly city, an alternate human culture within every human culture, to show how sex and money and power can be used in non-destructive ways, to show how classes and races who cannot get along outside of Christ can get along in Him, and to show how it's possible to produce art that brings hope rather than despair or sexual stimulation. Listen to what he writes. Christians will not be attractive within our culture through power plays or, or, or coercion, but through sacrificial service to people regardless of their beliefs. We do not live here simply to increase the prosperity of our own tribe and group, but for the good of all the peoples of the city. Friends, I believe that this idea is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. By God's grace and through the power of the Spirit, we live as citizens of Christ's kingdom, awaiting that day when we will fully experience God's perfect and eternal reign. But while we're here, while we're still here, because our identity is defined fundamentally by our position in Christ, how we live then says something about our King and His kingdom. I think this idea, what I just explained, is made very clear by the pictures Christ gives us in verses 13 through 16. Look at the text with me. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So be salt and be light. This means that we should be different. As followers of Christ, we should stand out, right? Well, yes, but perhaps not the way we think. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is about Christ's kingdom here on earth. The kingdom of Jesus Christ does now exist, even though it does not exist yet in its full and final form. So real quick, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven in the Gospel of Matthew, we are talking about God's redemptive reign in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, which has broken into the present evil age and is now visible in the church. Lloyd-Jones writes, The kingdom of God is in every true Christian, and therefore in the church. It means the reign of God. The reign of Christ. And Christ is reigning today in every true Christian. He reigns in the church when she acknowledges Him truly. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. And the kingdom is yet to come. And you see all that in the Sermon on the Mount. So friends, 
Here's the soul-stirring, faith-fueling, joy-producing truth we find throughout the Gospels. This kingdom will spread. It will grow. And it will spread and grow through the sovereign power of the risen King Jesus and the faithful witness of churches like this. So if you look at the world around you, and your primary response is either fear or a kind of ambivalence, right? Fear that everything is getting worse. What's this world coming to? Or ambivalence because God has saved you and so you're good to go, so whatever. Friend, if that describes you, then you're almost completely missing the point of everything Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me make this clear. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're breathing, your primary task The goal of everything in your life is to display the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus your Lord. So that those who don't yet know Him will bow in repentance and faith before Him. Period. That's it. Boil down everything in life. In light of the Sermon on the Mount, you exist, I exist, and God invaded our sinful existence and radically saved us by His grace so that the King and His kingdom could be made visible through us. Now this may seem obvious, but if that's why you exist, if this is God's command and mandate for your life, then accomplishing this task necessarily entails people knowing you and seeing you, talking to you, rubbing shoulders with you, interacting with you, finding out what makes you tick. Sermon on the Mount is not a plea for radical separation or pious isolation but fearless infiltration. So the outline this morning is really simple. Jesus calls his followers to be salt and light, and so we'll look at what it means to be salt and light. Earlier in Jesus' sermon, in what we call the Beatitudes, he outlines numerous ways in which his disciples are and are becoming more and more distinct from the prevailing culture around them. But again, the ways in which we are to be different are not what we might think. So if you polled 100 Christians and you said, what is it that makes a Christian or should make a Christian different than those who do not know Christ? I don't know what answers you would come up with, but I'm confident you would come up with some answers that, were, that are very wrong and are very different than what we find in this text. So if you look at the Beatitudes, this is what we find. We are called to live with humility, to grieve over sin, both our own and the effects of sin generally. We are called to find joy and satisfaction in the way and will of God. We are called to extend mercy, to pursue purity, to make peace. We are called to faithfully endure persecution, suffering, and 
ridicule for the sake of Christ and the spread of the gospel, just to name a few things. So it's that that leads us into verse 13. We could say it this way. If what is outlined in the Beatitudes is true of you, always imperfectly, of course, but if if that is what marks your life, if it's marked by what we find in the Beatitudes, then you will be both salty and bright. So look with me at verse 13. You are salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Theologian Craig Blomberg applies this verse simply and clearly when he writes, Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. You see, salt's most basic function was that of a preservative. It would prevent food from becoming decayed and ultimately destroyed. So when we think of salt, we primarily think about it as as a kind of seasoning. But that's not what we're talking about here. Remember that During Jesus' earthly ministry, there is no refrigeration. So the meat would be preserved through using large amounts of salt. If you want to understand the exact science of how that works, don't ask me. I have absolutely no idea. But take a moment and think carefully about what Jesus is saying here. You don't have to understand all the scientific ramifications to get what he's saying. This is no simple statement of distinction. Be salt. Be distinct or different from the world. Christians are to be different from the world, but why? If the previous verses lay out how we are to be different, this is emphasizing why. Why must we be different? Friends, the effects of sin are devastating, aren't they? When sin runs rampant in a society, it only causes pain and suffering, confusion, and ultimately destruction. We know that. Uh, We've experienced it to some degree, and we see it happening all around us. It's impossible to ignore. But in the midst of it, what does God want from us? You find yourself wondering that when you're watching the news, when you're reading a news story in the newspaper, if you still do that, or online. And your, your, your mind starts to spin and you wonder, what, what are we supposed to do? One author writes, Jesus calls his disciples not only to preach the gospel, but to oppose corruption and prevent moral decay in their world. In other words, brothers and sisters, our job is not to observe the sin and devastation that runs rampant and think, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm safe from the coming judgment. But then give no thought to what it actually means to be salt. What does it look like for me and you to be engaged in pushing back the forces of evil in this world through the power of the resurrected Christ. What does that look like? D.A. Carson writes, Implicitly, Jesus is saying that apart from the disciples, the world turns ever more rotten. 
Christians have the effect of delaying moral and spiritual decay. If their lives conform to the norms of verses 3 through 12, they cannot help but be an influence for good in society. Okay? So, now personalize that. Jesus is saying that apart from Chris, or Pete, or Julie, or Adam, or Paul, the world turns ever more rotten. Or Christ fellowship has the effect of delaying moral and spiritual decay in their community. Really? How? How is that happening? Not not generally, but specifically. How are you being salt? There is a very real sense in which we ought to be able to say that sin has made less progress in Sun Prairie because of the influence of the lives of the members of Christ Fellowship. Does the existence of this church and your interaction with your community and the the world around you have any positive kingdom effect? I think that's a question we all have to answer. Because notice the, the startling part of verse 13. If salt has lost its taste... It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So friends, this is a little bit shocking. I think this is what Jesus intends for it to be. If salt is contaminated, if it's diluted, it will not have its preserving effect. So so follow me here. The gospel of the grace of God infuses hopeless sinners with a kind of redemptive saltiness. And there is a sense in which that can never be taken away. But, to follow Jesus' analogy here, salt cannot exercise its preserving effect if it does not come into contact with that which it can preserve. Right? If there is no contact, there can't be any effect. So don't miss this. Perhaps Christians are largely ineffective in the world because we have bought into one of two mindsets. And there are other possibilities, but these are two that came to mind perhaps because I'm tempted toward both of these. One, a mindset that that I alluded to before. It could be described as separatistic, fatalistic isolation. Right? It acknowledges wickedness in the world. It acknowledges some measure of gratitude for the gospel, but it's more than happy to sit back and ride it out until Jesus comes. A second mindset is only a little bit better. It acknowledges wickedness in the world. It acknowledges some measure of gratitude for the gospel. And in fact, this person will even pray for the lost and engage in a handful of church 
ministries or social causes that aim to make a difference. And I don't want to discourage you from that. But if we're talking about something as radical as opening your home to people in your neighborhood or engaging with those in your community who are more obviously broken and hopeless, if we're talking about giving up excessive amounts of time and and money, if we're talking about saying no to things we enjoy and and sacrificing for the good of others when, when there's no real immediate benefit for us, if that's the sort of stuff we're talking about, then no thanks. That sounds a a, a little too crazy. Friends, in both these cases and, and others, there is no meaningful contact. There's no meaningful contact between the people of God and people who need God. And if there is no contact, there will be no redemptive effect. Charles Spurgeon wrote, you are active and you are to affect others as the salt which operates and seasons. You are not a candle unlit, which can exist without affecting others. You are a lighted candle and you cannot be so lit without scattering light around. Listen to what he writes. You are made on purpose to exert influence. And your master warns you that if your influence be not good, you are a hopelessly useless person. For when the salt has lost its savor, it is good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot. You are expected, Spurgeon says, therefore, to influence others for good. So, brother or sister, are you salt? Not are you a Christian, but are you actually working in tangible ways to delay the moral and spiritual decay running rampant all around you? Are you active in this world for the good of others and ultimately for the glory of Christ? Let me rephrase Jesus' words this way. What good is salt? What good is salt if it remains on the shelf, closed away in the cupboards of complacent Christianity? More directly, friends, if God took you out of your job or your neighborhood, spiritually speaking, what difference would it make? If God removed Christ's fellowship from Sun Prairie, would your community miss you? Would it have any practical impact at all? For salt to do its job, there must be contact. Jesus says, you are salt. Second, you are light. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If the key to understanding what it means to be salt is contact, 
then the key to understanding what it means to be light is contrast. You don't have to be a genius to understand the vast difference between light and darkness. So when I was in college, I lived at home. And my room was in the basement. And it was, I think, before you had to have large egress windows or we didn't care. Uh, but I was, I was in the basement and I loved this room because no matter what time of day it was, when you closed the door, it was pitch black. And so as, as a college student, I could, I could sleep in. And it could be 10 o'clock in the morning, noon, 1, 2 in the afternoon, and I wouldn't have any idea. Nothing would be interrupting my sleep. It was pitch black. So I remember one night in particular, it's during the middle of the night, I think. It could have been some other time, but I, I think it was during the middle of the night, and I, I, I got up, and it was pitch black. And I'm, I'm feeling around, I think I was going to the restroom or something, and so I'm feeling around like this for the corner, and, and somebody, I have a hard time believing it was me, perhaps one of my brothers, left my door open. So as I'm feeling around like this, my door is open like this. And so I'm in the dark, stumbling, feeling around, and I walk directly into the corner of the door. And then spent a couple of days with a, a red stripe right, right down the center of my face, a very distinct stripe that people ask me about and uh, just acted like the accident affected my hearing as well. Just keep, keep walking. I don't want to explain that. Now, now I've, to, to the best of my knowledge, I've never done that in the light. Never walked into the corner of a door when the lights were shining or the sun was out. It's only happened in the dark. There's a, there's a massive difference between light and darkness. If Jesus is calling his people, the church, to be light, then by implication, get the illustration here, those who reject him, the world that denies him is classified as darkness. This is not an unfamiliar pattern in Scripture. Things associated with God, goodness, righteousness, gospel, are called light. Those things that oppose him, sin, wickedness, rebellion, are referred to as darkness. So within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what's the point of Jesus' example here. We get that there's a contrast between darkness and light. We get that those two classifications we find in Scripture. But in order to understand the full weight of this illustration, you have to imagine a world without electricity, without street lights or porch lights or, or even multiple lights throughout a house. This is a world where there is a kind of darkness that is difficult for us to comprehend. Darkness that could only be described as total blinding blackness. Now imagine the effect. Imagine the effect that even the smallest flickering flame would have in that kind of blackness. In fact, during those rare times when the power goes out, If you're like me, I'm always amazed at how much light a single candle gives off. Friends, this is the picture. 
in a world that is dominated by the darkness of sin and pain and destruction, even small and seemingly insignificant acts of righteousness, of meekness and mercy and peacemaking can have a profound effect. Look at, look at the text again. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the church, the family of God, redeemed and made new in Jesus Christ, ought to shine with the radiance of the glory of God. Friends, we are like a divinely lit up city set on a hill. And by God's grace, the light that we have been sovereignly given ought to cascade down the hillside and spread throughout the countryside as we each go forward, candles in hand, bringing with us gospel flames. Instead of hiding away, we infiltrate our community. And we lovingly and sincerely serve selflessly in hopes that those who live blinded by the darkness will see through our good works the beauty and light of God's love. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a, that's a breathtaking picture. So you gather like this, you celebrate the, the glory of Christ in the gospel. It has made you new. Without Christ, apart from the gospel, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But the Spirit has quickened you and made you alive in Christ That's reality. You celebrate that here and then you take that light out. And you go and you live your life so that people who don't know the light see the light. Just like salt needs contact to be effective, light needs to be seen to create contrast. Both pictures in our text, both of Jesus' examples require what? Proximity, don't they? Closeness. Living in the midst of. This truth is so clearly stated and and powerfully so by the great reformer Martin Luther. Listen to what he says. The kingdom, he's talking about Christians, the kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would have ever been spared? 
Friends, the contrast between light and darkness will never be seen if the light bearers and the candle holders are living in hiding. I can't improve on the children's song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. No. Not only would it be an astonishing act of selfishness to hide the light, but it would be incredibly foolish. Notice the the certain success of those who are courageous enough to take the light into darkness. Look again at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, and I'm going to throw in there this, and some will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let me close with this. There is a kind of ungodly separation or isolation, a withdrawing from the world we live in that renders salt useless and hides the light of God's love from those who need it most. So brothers and sisters of Christ's fellowship, instead of retreating in fear or under the false guise of some unbiblical idea of holiness, move forward in love. Join arms with each other. Push back the forces of darkness in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, and your city. And here's the sobering and wonderful reality. You can. You can. Because you belong to a king whose kingdom cannot and will not be stopped. So let me close again with the words of Charles Spurgeon in his sermon to his own congregation on this text. This is what he said. The master expects, as he has put the pungent influence of his grace into you, that you should be as salt. As he has put the burning light of his grace upon you, that you should be as a lamp. And scatter light all around. Take good heed of that. It is no saying of mine. It is the saying of him who you call Lord and Master. Spurgeon continues, think of him. Think of him speaking it from those dear lips. Which are like lilies dropping sweet smelling myrrh. And instead of seeing my hands lifted up in warning, think of the print of the nails in his hands. And let his words come home with force to your soul. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your kindness to us in Christ. There is not a person in this room who who merits your grace, who could have earned your favor. 
But in your kindness, you sent your Son to seek and to save the lost. He did not hang on a cross bearing your wrath for his own sin. but for the sin of all those who come in repentance and faith. The Spirit of God move us from appreciation to action. Father, we are we are your plan. You have chosen to take your gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation through your church. And that obviously includes Sun Prairie and Madison. So God, by your spirit, do in us what only you can do. Awaken us. Convict us. Change us. For your glory and for our ever-increasing joy in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.